Señor, ¿listo? Yep. Let's do this. Señor, just like I was saying, I'm extremely excited <laughs> about today. Excited to you accepted my invite. Absolutely. Um, I, I knew it, that you were going to be sharp at 7 p.m. because <laughs> I know you already. <laughs> and I'm just so glad that we're making this happen. So thank you so much. You're again. very welcome. It's my pleasure. No, señor, thank you. There's so many topics, so many things that I, I definitely want to ask. I want to get into your mindset. I, I, I want to get best practices myself. And I know that um, the audience that is watching or hearing, of course, they're going to also take a lot of um, value from this. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, okay. for, for those that maybe you're not familiar with who Tommy Gonzalez is, tell us a little bit about you, who you are, and what is it that you do? Okay, well, so I was born and raised on the east side of Lubbock, Texas. I always preface that by saying the east side because it wasn't the very good part of town. It was a bad part of town. I went to um, probably the uh, not the best school in Parkway Elementary School. It's probably the worst school in the city. And then I went to junior high at Alderson and then kind of moved around. Uh, the, the bottom line, we grew up very poor. Um, I remember running out of food like on Wednesday and not getting food till my dad got paid on Friday at noon. And I remember going with my mom to go pick up the check and then going to the store. And I just remember bologna and cheese and Doritos and Kool-Aid. And it was the best meal to eat that whenever you skip a day of not eating. And so I know what it feels like to, to be hungry, but at the same time know how it feels to, to have a great family, to be loved by, by your mom and dad. And, Uh, the fact that they had priorities for us, um, they had a plan. They didn't go to school, so they wanted all of us to go to school. So she had a, a plan to do that. And I remember when I wanted to play football, she did not want to let me play. And my dad said, let him play. And my mom was like, she was very like aggressive with my dad and was like, well, if he gets hurt, you know, it's going to be your fault. And she just said a lot of bad things to him. And anyway, they let me play and um, ended up getting a scholarship playing football in college. And uh, I was being looked at by scouts, tore up my knee. Um, that's when the ROTC instructor came over and talked a lot of the football players into being, you know, in military men to get in the military. And so we did. We got in the military. And I know I was there 22 years, retired as a lieutenant colonel. And um, also, just throughout my career in city management, have worked in four other cities. I started in the city of Lubbock. I was the only person that looked like me. Everybody else was a little bit more light-complected than myself, but I was the only brown spot. And a lot of people thought, well, he got the job for, you know, they'd say a lot of things. Um, he got it because he played football. He got it because, you know, the white people like him. Just a lot of different bad comments like that. And so I really felt like I needed to prove myself so every time I was given a task I would do it the best that I could and I always would give more than what was asked of me and you know I remember having like 14 positions in 13 years so they really trained me really well in city management and when the city manager resigned and they made me interim in that first year we lowered the taxes by uh, 10 pennies we we passed the sales tax we did a lot of firsts And I just didn't get the job. You know, I, I, it was one vote short. My wife didn't want us to stay. She said, you know, you, you've done, you know, you, you've run the city. You, you've done a great job, and we don't need to stay here. So we went to Harlingen. I thought if I can't run the city I grew up in, I'll run the city my dad grew up in. He grew up in Harlingen, uh, Harlingen, Texas, in South Texas. So I was there a couple of years, and I went to the city of Dallas as a deputy city manager. 
and then to Irving as the city manager for eight years, and then I've been here seven. So, you know, I've I've worked for everything that I've that I've got, and I have put everything into um, what I do. And when I learned how to shape cities, and I learned that in Lubbock with Jim Bertram, who was a st- strategic planning uh, guru, I learned everything. Um, a lot of what I know, mostly everything about strategic planning from him. And I'm really good at it now because I've done it for a very long time in the city, uh, in cities rather, and the military has reinforced that, you know, strategic planning and management by objectives. So I really, you know, had a very few people that I was, I can able, be able to say that I leaned on them and they taught me things. Jim Bertram is one of them. Uh, I didn't have true mentors like other people have. So I've, you know, I've made mistakes in, in, in doing what I do in, in city management. But having learned from all those experiences, I bring that here to El Paso and, you know, you know the ways to shape a city, to change a city for the better. Um, I believe we've, we've done some of that here. And it's uh, been a little bit about everything that I've had as I've grown up that I've brought here to the table. And I see myself in El Paso and I see El Paso in me and, and vice versa. You know, there's a lot of challenges here. A lot of people think certain things about El Paso, just like people think certain things about me. And I know El Paso is where it's at because it's worked for what it has, just like all of us have. So my story is not that much different from a lot of El Pasoans. I just don't, I just wasn't born here. But um, my dad crossed when he was four. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that. And so I tell people all the time, I, I, I could be in Mexico right now. Because um, his, his uh, mother crossed, she was from Venezuela. And so they, they crossed and, and my mom, uh, her dad was Indian and her mom was from Spain. So when we did the Paseo de las Luces in downtown, that meant the world to me because that was a connection to my dad. You know, and we lost my dad in 2016. So when we were able to do Paseo de las Luces, I told that story about him crossing and about how, you know, we're all connected and, and that, that borders, you know, everybody talks about borders and yes, borders do provide security and safety, but at the same time, the way we're set up with, with Juarez, you know, it's part of our community, we're part of theirs. And it helps our economy, our economy helps their economy, and so we're, we're one region, and that's how I see it in terms of how it works. It's no different than North Texas, where you have all the suburbs around you. We just happen to have a big uh, suburb, or a big city in, as part of our suburb with uh, Juarez. And we're actually the small city compared to them because they're, they're much larger than we are. So we, we, we uh, operate as one region. Nice, Senor. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, before, because uh, again, we definitely going to talk about city management, some mm-hmm. of the steps you have taken, accomplishments that, um, that you have been able and your team um, have done throughout these seven years. Um, but I'm very interested. Are you looking back at all your accomplishments? Do you sometimes look back and feel proud about yourself like all the things that you have done you have a very impressive resume by the way so I'm, I'm, I'm just as I was doing a lot of research on you I'm like I wonder if Tommy looks back and say wow you know I I've been able to do all these things you know you, you know the, the way I look at, at the things that have been done in the past you know we, we to be able to harness everyone's energy and get everyone on the same page and get them all moving in the same direction, that's what I value because that is the time that you're able to move mountains, literally. You're able to change things. The things that 
I can tell you they've been done in other cities are very similar to what we've done here. Everybody talks about downtown and the city only focused on downtown. So what did we do? We focused on the Northeast. We focused on the Far East. We focused in the Mission Valley. And now you've got things in all of those parts of town. People can't say that we're just focusing on downtown. At the same time, when we do something in downtown, we were able to leverage a state income tax, or excuse me, a state sales tax rebate for hotels, something that goes to the state and the city doesn't see. We did that in the city of Irving, and we were able to create the Irving Music Factory. That's a big development in the urban center there in Las Colinas. So we were able to do that here with these hotels. The plaza was just a shell. It was gutted. The Camino Real was... I mean, you tell me what it was like. I mean, everybody said it was dilapidated and it, it, it had seen better days. And so you've got those two hotels that have been renovated, rejuvenated. You have the Paseo de las Luces, that's just a cherry on top. You've got San Jacinto, that's our central park. You have the, the hotel Marriott Courtyard, brand new hotel coming out of the ground. Hadn't happened in half a century to have a brand new hotel come out of the ground in downtown. And all that's fueled by the state sales tax, not, not just our money but millions upon millions of dollars from the state. So whenever you're able to leverage those opportunities and bring millions of dollars to the city from other people's money or the state, that's a good thing. And so that then buoyed the construction of the tallest office building in downtown that hasn't happened in 75, 80 years. And so those are the kinds of things that when you get people all kind of pulling in the same direction that you're able to accomplish. And that's when you feel proud. I feel proud of our of our community. I feel proud of the staff that makes up uh, these results. Uh, I feel proud of the council making tough decisions, that they're making decisions that are the best for the community and taking the taking the hits and standing up there boldly taking those hits and saying th these things are things that we've ignored, that we've neglected for years, and now they're making those tough decisions and they're seeing the results. So they make those tough decisions, I think, boldly and strongly and with a lot of pride. So, yeah, I, I see that pride in their eyes, and I'm proud of that. That's interesting. That, that's one of the reasons um, why I'm excited to talk to you um, mm -hmm. about a lot of things, but one of them is kind of like the improvements, the accomplishments from the city. Um, and I'll tell you, at least from my perspective, I notice that sometimes – most people just focus on the negative, right? Maybe just focus on the things that, that we're not doing as good as we should be doing, perhaps. But then we don't look at the big picture to see where we're at, the things that we are working on. Of course, there's a lot of work to do. But when you have kind of like people that only highlight El Paso wrong, the things that is wrong with El Paso, like, wait a second. Of course, yeah, maybe we need improvement on that. But overall, I'm proud of El Paso. I'm proud of the accomplishments. I see the difference myself five-year, ten-year difference. And I'm like, wow, what you're talking about? And, and that's why sometimes this is a, a recurring subject in, in the podcast is that a lot of times people have this mentality of there's nothing to do in El Paso. You know, that's why people are moving out. And I'm like, wait a second. That's kind of like you're reflecting um, your, your situation. But the fact is that there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of progress in our city. There's a lot of great people doing great stuff. Mm -hmm. um, definitely, we're going to talk about it a little bit more, but that's one of the reasons why I'm excited because I, I want you to share like the accomplishments and things that we have done and also the things that we're still missing and that you're working towards. So first of all, you, you can't get to the small things or even you know the big things. And a lot of people argue that you have to take care of the big things before you do the little things. And I, and I think it's the opposite. 
you have to do the little things right and you have to do them over and over and over you know good habits and good habits get you good results and then grow bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of how you push out those results so one of the things that you know seven years ago before we had a strategic plan which by the way the city never had a strategic plan in place ever in its history and it does now we introduced that in the fall of 2014 the city council approved that in january 2015 and we've been working that plan ever since and that plan is very very results oriented and it keeps the organization of 6,000 plus souls very goal centric and centered on having kind of a light a beacon of what direction we need to go in for example our, our vision statement is El Paso will have safe and beautiful neighborhoods and we can measure that you can measure the safety and that's the reason why we've added more police officers in the budget and that's what's increased the budget we can measure the vibrant regional economy. That's the other part, safe and beautiful neighborhoods and a vibrant regional economy. The safe and the beautiful neighborhoods part, we've got a development in the north part of, of the city, the first master plan community development, uh, master plan housing development ever in, in, in the city of El Paso that we did with the, with the foster group. And that was a combination of what we did with uh, what we, the work we did there and also the Angora Loop. That was something that was much needed in the northeast as well. So we did those two things in combination with one another. We've been able to put money aside, $10 million each year for streets. Seven years ago, you had $0 set aside for streets on an annual basis. Yes, you had them in bond issuances, and that's why the city has sold so many bonds, because it's neglected those kinds of priorities like streets, like police, like fire. And so those kinds of things we had to put in place. So when we talk about getting those things in order, we've saved over $220 million over the last seven years. We've been able to bring in $285 million. I mentioned how we did the hotels, and those are millions upon millions of dollars. That one hotel development in the plaza was $23 million. It's $24 million for, Paseo, for uh, Camino Real, which is now Paso del Norte Hotel. And it was, it was uh, $7 million for the Marriott Courtyard. So when you add up all those numbers, you're looking at over $50 million just in that one development itself in terms of how we were able to bring that from outside the city. When we renegotiated the El Paso Electric deal, we were able to bring back $205 million to the city starting in 2030. And we were also able to do $7.5 million between now and 2030 over the next 10 years. So we've been able to position ourselves for the future so that we can get more things done so that we look at the future today. Uh, we, don't, we don't do a budget by budget year every single year. We look at out into the future and plan for it. And you have to plan for it by the types of things that we mentioned, you know, having those type of savings. What has that enabled us to do? We have more streets that we've done. We've got better parks now. We've, we've been able to put soccer fields in place on the east side. We, we built the beast of the east in the far east side that's been neglected. The city council put it in front of the voters and they passed the public safety bond is going to put an east side regional command center on the east side, something that's sorely needed for the east part of, of El Paso that's been growing exponentially and faster than any other part of the city and has been ignored this whole time. A lot of people don't know this, but 20 years ago to today, we're barely where we were numbers-wise with police officers 20 years ago. Really? That's ridiculous. To, to let the numbers fall that much. And people wonder why the response times were so high. They were so high because the number of police officers were, was lacking. So a lot of those areas, whether it's streets, whether it's the number of police officers, whether it's the Eastside Regional Command Center, whether it's fire stations being put in place, 
And yes, the quality of life that people have asked for now that they've got spray parks that they can go to. They've got water parks that they can go play in. And these are things that, that families had to drive six, seven, eight hours to go participate and utilize some of these kind of facilities. And now they can do that in their own backyard. So those are the kinds of things that we now have in, in our city, not, not just in downtown, but all parts of the city. Exactly. And looking into the technical side, I, I definitely, and I know that um, our audience also wants to know as far as when it comes to leading those projects, what's step one, step two, what happens when there's some hiccups around the, uh, uh, along the way, of course, and we'll get to that. I'm just very interested to know about Tommy Gonzalez, how he got here. Because um, there's, a, um, if you can talk about uh, one of your, um, what is it, coach's wife in high school told you that you would make a great city manager when you were in high school. And that, to me, I'm like, wait a second. So does this mean, how was Tommy like in high school? Or what do yeah. you think that was? So I told you a little bit about my background, how I grew up very poor, and how I had to beg my mom for me to play sports. So I was good in sports. It was kind of my outlet. I really enjoyed it. I was, you know, I mentioned I was the only brown spot in a lot of other people that are a lot lighter complected than me working at the city of, of Lubbock. Well, when I was younger, I was the lighter skinned person and everybody else was, was, was black and I was brown, you know, and, and, and I played amongst uh, my friends who were African American. And I, I was dumb enough to think I was good, as good as they were. And, and I was in a lot of cases. I was very good in football and basketball, baseball, track. And that's all I did when I was little is just play outside with them. When I say them, th my friends in the neighborhood, and they happened to all be African American because I lived on the east side of El, of El Paso. I mean, excuse me, <laughs> I'm thinking El Paso, the east side of, of Lubbock. Um, so that really kind of um, has made me who I am. I remember giving a speech to a bunch of uh, uh, young people here in El Paso, and I, and, and I said, you've heard that story about baseball's been very, very good to me. And I said, well, football's been very, very good to me. And I said, if it wasn't for football, I wouldn't be a city manager. If it wasn't for football, I wouldn't have finished my, my college uh degree or gotten a master's. I said, if it wasn't for football, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have met my wife and married her. So, you know, football has been very, very good to me. And so I kind of made that joke with, I forget which baseball player said that, but um, I said that to these kids and I told them all the things that I was able to do as a result of playing football. I was even able to save uh, one of my best friend's life uh, that I grew up with whenever um, he and I were 10 years old was the first time we met in YFL in Lubbock. His name's, his name's Alvin. And um, he, uh, he hit me. He was playing on defense. He got, he got up, and the coach said, you know, because we were, like, pushing each other. And the coach said, y'all want to fight? You want to fight? And bring boxing gloves. Anyway, he was a lot bigger than me. And he was a big, gentle giant. And I was like, yeah, I want to fight. And he was like, no, nah, coach, I don't want to fight. And so, anyway, we were best friends ever, ever since that time we met. Well, he and I went to college together and played football together. So um, about two years ago, you know, he was going through a really bad time. He had divorced his wife, and he wanted to kill himself. So he called me. And I talked him out of it. So football has helped me save my best friend's life. So football has really been the cornerstone of, of, of who I am, you know, in terms of giving me opportunity to even be in the military. Had I not hurt my knee, I wouldn't be in the military. So when, when uh, you talked about the city secretary um, in Lubbock, who was married to my coach in high school, every time she'd see me, whether it was in high school, she'd tell me that I'd make a great city manager. I didn't know what a city manager did. I went off to college. Again, she'd see me at different events. She'd say the same thing. Um, I, I tore my knee up. I went up, off to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I came back after the deployment. She told me the same thing. 
So I got out in the early out program. I was going to go work for a bank. I was actually interviewing with a bank, and that's what I was going to do. Um, and and I was thinking, you know, you know, I've worked my way up in a, in the banking system. And she she got me an interview at the city of Lubbock, and I got an interview. And and I remember sitting across the, the desk from the city manager. His name was Larry Cunningham. And he said, so what do you want to do? I said, well, and I just, keep in mind, I just got back from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, having 90 pounds on my back, out in the desert, sweating it up, you know, 125 degrees, you know, it, pretty bad conditions. So I come back, he's in an air-conditioned office, he's wearing a white shirt like you with a tie, buttoned down, drinking his coffee. It's pretty cold in there, it's air-conditioned, and so I'm, you know, I just got back from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and I'm interviewing for these jobs, and I interview with him, and he says, what do you want to do, you know, um, when you grow up, you know, what do you what do you have in mind? I said, well, I think I want to do what you do. It doesn't look that hard. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If only if only I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have asked that. I wouldn't have said that stupid statement to him. Anyway, he encouraged me to get my master's. He says, you have to go get your master's. You can't let that stop you. And, you know, I was a, a brash young man. And I was like, well, do you have one? You know, and he says, well, no. And I said, well, why do I need one? He goes, you need one, he said, because you don't want to be told no in a job in the future because you don't have your master's. He, he said, I wish I had my master's. So I got my master's because he told me to. And, and I remember seeing other people that had theirs, and I'm thinking, that guy, I'm as smart as that person. If that person can do it, I can do it too. And I tell my kids that now all the time. Look, that person is this. You can do that too. And so you have to motivate yourself. So, so I did. I motivated myself that way, and I started working there. And, and when I made working in a city competition like football, uh, that's whenever I got good at what, I, what I'm doing. Uh, I made it a competition where I'm like, I want us to be the best. I, I want us to, whether it's the best at saving money, the best at bringing in new revenue, the best at bringing in things that we haven't had before, uh, whether it's the best at doing strategic planning. And then we do a lot of benchmarking. We compare ourselves to other cities, and we compare ourselves to other organizations. And that's the reason why when everybody was criticizing us and saying that, you know, we were the most infected city on the planet, not just in the United States, on the planet, in the world, and how we had the best rollout, according to the CDC and Rockefeller Foundation, that we were the best in the, in the nation, that was a proud moment for our staff and for our council for, for being that critical, for, for stretching us, for, for forcing us to be that good. And now, you know, we have 81% that are, they have one dose in their arms and 70% fully vaccinated. You know, when you say, well, how does that compare to the nation? Well, the nation barely got to 70% with one dose and we're at 81%. We were at 70% about six weeks ago. You know, and, and in, in terms of fully vaccinated, we're at 70%, we're ahead of the nation and we're also ahead of the state, and we're ahead of every large urban county in the state of Texas. So I think that when you have these these uh, best practices in place, you just have to stick to them, push hard, uh, have confidence, uh, motivate others, inspire them to do more than what they're expected to do, and you can get these results. And the beneficiaries is our beautiful community because, you know, we get to protect it. We get to make it better, whether it's uh, from a health perspective, from a safety perspective, or from an amenities perspective in terms of quality of life and making that better for our community as well. Interesting. We're definitely going to talk about COVID, past and also present and future, especially with what's going on. I'm, I'm definitely going to ask questions on what the current situation is and what are some actions that you guys are taking already. But I want to go back to the skills that this, again, um, this person in high school saw in you 
that she said, because uh, she could have said, oh, you're going to be rich when you grow up. Okay, I get that, right? But maybe your, your passion around making things good, whatever that is. But she was very specific that you'll be a great city manager. What are some of the skills that she saw? I have no idea. I really don't. I, Looking back now, I think <clears throat> in this position, you have to be able to communicate well. You have to have confidence. You can't give up easily. You have to have stick-to-itiveness. You have to have intestinal fortitude. You have to have mental toughness. You have to be able to get results. You have to be able to work hard, uh, have a strong work ethic. You have to be able to do things regardless of what's happening around you. I think that growing up the way I did, that helped shape that tough environment for me. The military reinforced that. Certainly football did as well, as well as sports. There's just so many lessons uh, that we, we get in, in the military that it reinforces the things you learn from your parents when you're little. You also get a lot of life skills and, and life lessons and leadership lessons, uh, both in, you know, not only in, in playing on the football field, but on the hard court, in track and baseball. And again, in the military, you know, being placed in situations where it's very stressful, very tense, very little sleep, maybe sometimes not as much food, but, you know, I was used to that as a kid. So being placed in those positions and having to lead people, not just reading it in a book, but having to lead people under those conditions, it's it's not easy. And so you have to learn as as you do, and you don't have sometimes uh, a chance for a second chance. And so sometimes being good at something is extremely important. I mean, as an officer, you have to go in, and as a 22-year-old, you know, I had a platoon sergeant that was 57 years old. They, had to re they reported to me. What am I going to know more than a 57-year-old? So you have to be good at your craft. And I didn't want to be one of those dumb second lieutenants like you see in the movies. Uh, you know, you have to know your stuff. Then you have to roll up your sleeves, work right alongside with them. And you, you continue to do that in city management. I remember in, not, not only here but in other cities, I'd go out and, and, and uh, replace pipe with the water department that reported to me in Irving. I remember going out and doing the same thing with the electric company that reported to me in Lubbock, Texas. I've gone out and picked up trash. Here, you don't pick it up, it's, it's electronic. But in Irving, you actually pick trash up you know, with your hands and you just picked it up through in the, in the, in the back of the garbage uh, truck. And I did those things and I didn't, get any, I didn't want any attention for it. I, I did it so that I could be reminded of you know, for, how fortunate I was to work in that air conditioned office. Whenever I was sitting across that city manager and saying, hey, I think I want to do what you do. It doesn't look that hard. I wanted to be reminded, you know, of, you know, where I came from and how, you know, I'm very thankful for what I do. And that when you go out and you talk to them and with the people, with the people that work for you, that do those hard manual labor jobs, you learn things you don't get in a report, the nuances. I mean, whenever I went and did that, you know, I didn't know back in that city that we weren't paying for their steel toe boots. So they were buying cheaper boots so they could pocket their money because they, they'd get a stipend, meaning like 75 bucks. And so the steel toe boots that you needed to get were 150. So what they do is they get cheaper boots that were like 40 bucks and they keep the $35 or whatever it was. So I said, no, we're not doing that anymore. We're just gonna buy them steel toe boots because we had a lot of accidents, a lot of workers comp issues. So it was things like that that you learn that are 
They might be insignificant to some. It might be minor details. But those are the type of things that you pay attention to, that you have to pay attention to if, if you're going to lead other people. Maybe that's what she saw. You know, as a quarterback in high school, you know, I always did the little things. And I think she saw that, and I think the coach told her that. I was the only one working out in the summer all day. And whenever we'd run sprints and two-a-days, everybody else would be throwing up. I'd be standing straight up thinking, why is everybody throwing up? I was too um, ignorant to know that everybody was drinking. I didn't drink in high school. I didn't drink in college. Um, I didn't touch alcohol until we lost our twins. Mm-hmm. As, as, as you're telling me this, um, of course, a lot of uh, things, um, well, football played a big role, definitely, right? But to be honest with you, not every college or high school football player has this mentality, this work ethic as you do, right? So it definitely has to be, I know your family, your dad played a big role. What can you talk about? Well, can you give us a little bit of details of how was it growing up? What were the big lessons that you learned from your family, from your dad especially? Well, I'm going to try to keep, uh, keep it together. Every time I talk about my dad, I get very sentimental. Um, my mom was tenacious. And if I had to compare the two, uh, my, my dad showed us through his, he was modeling behavior. He was, he was very um, sympathetic, empathetic, very um, never said a whole lot. When he said something, you listened. And I remember talking to someone about how to become a better leader, and they were talking to me about that. And I remember I had a conversation with that person, and I said, you know, I thought the other day about how can I be a better leader? And I, the answer that came to my mind was, what would my dad do in terms of making me better? Because if, if I treated a situation like he would treat a situation, then I'd, I'd handle it much more effectively than how I would do it myself, just with just my own thoughts and feelings about it. So both my mom and dad taught me a lot about having a vision and having a plan and executing the plan and how you treat one another and executing that. And that's exactly what we do in our organization with the vision statement that I mentioned that we've got, the strategic plan that we have, and then the, the values, how we treat one another. So I learned that early from my mom and dad and didn't even know it. And as far as what modeling behavior he taught me, I know every time I got in trouble when I was a little kid, um, and, you know, y- y'all have heard this phrase in, in, in uh, Spanish, encabezudo, stuff like that. And so, um, anyway, you know, when I was a little kid, six, seven years, eight years old, you know, I'd be a little kid. You know, I'd fight with my sisters and, you know, just be a little kid. And so I remember when my mom would say to my dad, ve habla con tu hijo porque, you know, how I acted that day or something like that. And I remember my dad walking in, and this is him working this hard job at, at Eagle Pitcher and he'd have soot on his boots and he'd have you know he'd be all dirty and he'd come in and he needs to shower he needs to eat and he's go to his second job so he's got to come talk to me <laughs> so I feel this big I mean I, I feel like golly I'm man I wish you know I, my dad didn't have to do this and so he comes in he goes and instead of spanking me you know I wanted a spanking you know I'd, I'd feel like just get it over with spank me he'd come in and he'd say he thought I guess he's the asshole you know, and man, I felt this small. That's all he had to tell me. I felt horrible. Um, 
my mom, she was a lot more, you know, tenacious. But my dad, he just handled things with, with a kid glove very gently, but boy, did it hurt. And so, just because I had so much respect for him. Um, and, you know, because he, he, he modeled a strong work ethic. Um, I remember Saturdays, he had another job. And then on Sundays, you'd think he's going to rest. Well, he was an usher at church. So he'd be the first one there and last one to leave. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, and, and then he'd get these these pamphlets on these orphan kids and they'd give, he'd give the little money he had to that because he gave all the checks to my mom. So whatever little money he had that he didn't use up for, I don't know, for whatever, he would give $10, $20 to, to this these charities of these, like, orphan kids. So, I mean, I just, my dad, um, he just uh, modeled just superb behavior as a, as a man and as a leader. And so I'm just very thankful for him. Nice. I want to talk about when he said, no lo digas, hazlo. Yeah. That's something that you, of course, practice on a daily basis. Yeah. And when you're also helping your own leaders, that's something that I'm sure you, you bring up. Um, something b before you answer that, um, something that I wanted to share with, with the audience is that I know Tommy from, from the gym. We used to go, well, I used to go to the gym that, uh, that you work out, which is Sun City Athletic. Um, and before knowing that you were the city manager, I mean, you can tell you're always pushing me around, encouraging me, like, hey, make sure you do this, make sure you do, uh, like, finish your, your, your exercise, your sets, your reps. I'm like, wow, you know, like, <laughs> the older man, of course, uh, he's pushing me, he's like motivating me in a way that I feel excited. Um, every time that maybe I don't want to go to the gym the next day, I'm like, oh, what will Tommy say? What will Tommy do? And like, am I going to be able to see Tommy like in two days with like, oh, I didn't come because I just couldn't wake up. No excuses, right? And what, uh, what the point I'm trying to make is that I, I'm a firm believer that how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm -hmm. And it's not only like this persona that you're putting for city management or the, your, the things that kind of like what you follow or your, your career, whatever it is, this is you 100%. Yeah, yeah, and it goes back to my mom and dad. And my dad used to always say, no lo digas, hazlo. And now we have that on the, on the walls in, in the, in the city hall. And, um, I remember I had someone give me a, a pen the other day and it had that on there and I just, you know, was tearing up and bawling. I mean, it was just a very, very thoughtful gift. And it's something like you say t that you need to do on a daily basis. And, and I know that people who don't know me personally, they, they see a facade, they see a certain individual, but my you know, my dad saying that uh, my my mom being the way she was it really has shaped who I am and you know I do believe in, in not having an excuse and taking responsibility being accountable and I tell my folks that you know we want to not use the word try because it gives you an excuse to not get something done that doesn't mean that if you're young you're a little kid and, and you're telling them or you're telling the little kids not to try no I'm not saying that but at the same time, you either get it done or you don't get it done. You either threw out the trash or you didn't. You know, you either do something for your kids or you didn't. And and that same goes for your wife. I mean, I think you have to be committed and loyal to your to your wife to show your kids how to treat your your mother. You know, how their mother gets treated, so that they they model that same behavior whenever they have a relationship. So I think that's important. And so to your point, no lo digas hazlo. That's a good message for anybody. And not having excuses is a good message for everybody. And 
Uh, we're, I think, the best country on the planet. I know a lot of people are saying a lot of things about America, but they get the they get the ability they get the right to say that they have the right to say that they they get the uh, they have the environment to be able to freely say that and not get shot when they walk out after they say whatever they said. And in other countries, you can't say that. So I always tell people when they when they when they have a lot of complaints or concerns, um, you know, we choose to live where we live, and there's a cost to it. Whether there's a cost of paying for it, whether you're paying for your phone, paying for cable, paying for streets, uh, or whether you're paying for freedom through the people who have served and the people who are still serving, whether unless those things are just words and they don't mean anything to anybody. And I think they should mean something to, to everyone because what's life about if it's not about having values and having plans and executing those plans and, and, and leave, leaving a footprint and leaving a legacy and leaving an example for your kids and for others. I mean, we've got to be the best we can be while we're here because we're not going to be here that long. I mean, you know, when you think about it, you know, 30 years is going to go by really fast. 30 years has already gone by really fast for me. I've been doing this for over 30 years. So another 30 years is going to come and go. Then I'm going to be 84 like my dad. That's when he passed. So you could say I got 30 years left. You could say I'm in the third quarter. And so I want to play the third quarter really, really well. And I want to play the fourth quarter really well. And I want to finish Great. strong. Yeah. Great perspective, Tommy. Let me ask you, how difficult is it? Is it difficult um, to make sure that you instill the same values, that you're raising your own family, your kids, your sons, kind of like the same way that your dad was able to do with your family, with your with, with your siblings. Do you look back and sometimes um, wonder if you're doing a good job? I know you are, but I just wanna, I'm wondering from, from your perspective, do you sometimes kind of like, am I doing a good job? What yeah. would my dad do for like specific situations, scenarios? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I've made a lot of mistakes as a father. Uh, but every day I'm putting my very best effort and doing the very best for my kids and for, for my wife, you know. So, but, but we're not perfect. So, yeah, because you want the very best for them, the very best for your wife, yeah, yes, you know, I'm like, well, man, I could have done that better. Maybe, maybe I should do this more. And, you know, but the modeling behavior that my dad taught me, I do that every day for them. The kids see that. The kids see that I get up. And they know how old I am, and we know how old they are. And I do more than they do at the gym. And now my older one's catching up, which I'm very proud of. But I remind them I've got a lot of surgeries and a lot of injuries. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm just glad that I did what I did in front of him four years ago before I had my first uh, shoulder surgery because I was doing a lot of weight. And, you know, kids nowadays, they have to see it. And otherwise, yeah, yeah, you're just talking. So he's seen it. He's in, And it's important for me for him to know that, you know, he had a – you know, a father that, that had a strong work ethic, that, that um, had some accomplishments in, in, in sports so that he can, he can work hard for that as well. That's the only reason. And um, I think that emulating uh, those kind of behaviors for them is important, so you have to provide an example. It's not easy because as a father, you know, your kids, they see everything, everything. I mean, I tell people all the time whenever they used to always say, well, he's a good leader, this, and this, and now, you know what? I didn't start becoming or knowing what a leader was till we started having kids. And they see everything you do, and they're like, well, Daddy, why are you doing that? You know, texting and driving is an example. Well, I'm at the stoplight. Well, but, Daddy, you're still driving. You know what I mean? So it's all those kinds of little things that 
they remind you of. So you have to be an example to them all the time. And my wife reminds me all the time. She goes, don't do that because the kids, they do everything you do. So it's very tough to, to be a good leader when your kids are always watching. But you know what? That happens when I'm in the position that I'm in now. My, my folks at the city, they're always watching. So it's no different than whenever I was in the military or whenever I played quarterback in college. Everybody's watching, and everybody's got something to say. I remember uh, playing in a game, and I had, like, six touchdowns. I had no interceptions, but, you know, I threw the ball away a couple, two or three, two, three times, or, or I got sacked. I had a really good game. I remember coming down to the stands, and my wife and I got married in college, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting off the field. I had a great game. And my wife's tearing up. I said, what's wrong? And she said all the things that they said about me. And I said, what do you mean? I had six touchdowns. I didn't get picked off. Yeah, but they said you took the sack because you didn't. You wanted to protect your numbers and all this kind of stuff. So that was a very good lesson in that it doesn't matter how well you do, somebody's going to always have something to say. And that's the men where mental toughness comes in. That's where the, the strength in your character and believing in what you do is important. That's why I gave you that example about when we were the most infected city on the planet and everybody was attacking, are you going to shrivel up or are you going to get stronger? So we had a lot of confidence and faith in what we were doing, and we didn't, we didn't go the state way or the national way. We went our way, and the numbers speak for themselves. Definitely. And by the way, just to close out this topic, I, I can tell you, I know Sagan personally, I don't know your other son, but, I mean, you can tell that you're doing an amazing job. He's such an amazing young person. He's 20 now, 18, 19? He's 19. He's 19. Yeah. But you can tell he has the work ethic, very respectful individual. And, and you, I mean, you can tell that you're doing such a great job. So I just want to acknowledge that. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Uh, he's, he, he reminds me of my dad. Does he? Yeah. Why? And then my other son <laughs> reminds me of my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? You well, know what well, Sagan's very compassionate. Uh -huh. And Sager is very tenacious. Okay. Sager's got a temper on him. And he's very tenacious. It's my mom. And Sager, uh, Sagan is uh, is just you know very compassionate, and and both of those qualities, um, you know, you can ex comes from my wife as well. My wife is more compassionate and more sweet. She's not tough. Or she's not she's not like uh, aggressive or tenacious like Sager is. I mean, she can be, but she's very sweet, and so um, they both have those qualities. But uh, that's what the kids remind me of whenever I whenever I see them and whenever they're uh, doing what they do. Nice. Every time you talk about your wife, you can tell that you're in love with your wife. Yeah. You respect your wife. How important has she been to your success overall? She's, she means everything to my success. I mean, she's been there throughout the entire time. I don't make a move without her. And she gives me advice all the time. And I tell people all the time, be very glad I'm running the city, not her, because she'd put y'all, she'd get y'all in shape a lot quicker. She's, she's a lot, um, more direct and to the point she's a very smart lady um and and i just i think she, you know she's beautiful on the outside but she's even more beautiful on the inside and and it's that's a tough it's a tough combination because i mean you can't beat that i mean she's she's just a wonderful wonderful human being i'm, I'm very lucky and and the importance of her role uh and what I'm thinking is, like, when you have difficult days at work, I'm sure you had a handful of those. Oh, yeah. How important the support, knowing that you have that, of course, support at home to be able to, okay, well, let's do it again next day, right? Yeah, I'm, I, I, I can't thank God enough for, I mean, giving me Sandy. I mean, she's she's everything. She's, 
she found me. I mean, it's a long story. Um, maybe I'll tell you that sometime. But she found me uh, uh, way back when. But God didn't know who she was. And she kind of found me, and which I'm glad. And so she made it very easy uh, for me because, I mean, how could I say no to meeting someone like that? But um, she uh, she has been there for, for us. Um, when I say us, me and the kids. But, like, we're not in Lubbock because of her. We're in El Paso because of her. <laughs> I mean, I had offers in Florida, in uh, California, in North Carolina, and, she, you know, she didn't want to go there. And so when this job came up uh, and they offered me the job, she goes, yes, uh, we'll go to El Paso because it's in Texas. And it was still close enough for us to be a near family uh, in Lubbock. And, uh, yeah, so we're here because of her. I don't know if you recall this conversation that we had, um, but I remember this vividly because I – I don't know why we were talking about people marrying young, right? So my take on that is make sure you marry after 30, 35, push it because that way you're able to travel, not only travel, but open up your perspective, get yeah. different perspective. And we, we were having that conversation. And I, I, my question to you was, what do you regret marrying at such a young age? And I remember your answer was no. And then you explained why, and I'm like, <gasps> Everyone's saying, well, of course, if you hit the lottery at 21, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I would also want it that, but there's a high chance, please don't marry young, that's my opinion, there's a high chance that that's not gonna happen to a lot of people, especially because at that state of mind, most people, uh, their brain is not developed and also maybe their perspective uh, of the world of uh, other things is not as they, uh, it would be at 30 or 35. So I just remember that conversation and I, again, that's where I like, well, you know, it goes back to my father. I mean, he had a lot of respect for my mom, and he, I remember when he'd come home, he'd give her the check, and he would look to her for guidance, but I mean, but he was also a man and led our family, but he was very respectful to my mom and gave her her respect and, and what she meant to the family. So I learned that young, and so my wife's very petite, but very strong woman, and so she knew what she wanted, so when we met, you know, it was 19 when I hit the lotteries when we met. And she, I remember one summer, the following summer after we had met, I mean, I, I, I remember this as if it was yesterday. She was playing in a soccer tournament. She was really good in soccer. She was playing indoor soccer. And she had like eight goals. I mean, it was ridiculous. She was like a little, she was like a video game. And so she comes up to me, I mean, this beautiful young lady, and, you know, she's a little sweaty, which which made her even more pretty at the time. And and so she comes up, she gives me a hug and kisses me. And, and you know, I'm, I was just got back from college. And I remember her telling me, I know what I want. What do you want? Because I don't want to waste my time. And I, and I thought, my gosh, she's, you know, that's pretty direct. And But at the same time, that's a good question. Yeah. You know, and so I said, well, I, I, want, I want you too. I mean, so what are you talking about? And so... She was that kind of direct, and it worked. And, and she looked the way she did, and, and I felt the way I did about her. And so her being that direct just helped everything along. And, yeah, so that's how it happened. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I appreciate that. You're very that. welcome. Let's continue to talk about your current role as a city manager, right? El Paso is the 21st largest city in the United States with a budget of over a billion dollars a year. What's the toughest? Uh, what's the toughest role, or the toughest part of your role as a city manager? What's the toughest part of your job? The, the 
the most challenging part is communicating and messaging on the things that need to get done and what it takes for those things to get done and then communicating that to the public and making sure that the council is aware of that that's probably the most challenging part you might think well yeah but that go you know that goes without saying yeah but it's like what I told you before until people know the root cause of the problem then you can just get lost in the problem in the complaints in just oh we can't do this or why is this like that and when we go back and show the council and the community and say look streets have been neglected for decades police why are we at the numbers we are whenever the city grew whenever BRAC came when, when Fort Bliss started expanding at the same time the city was reducing the number of police officers why would they do that so when you tell them the neglect occurred with the streets the neglect occurred with with police so so the tie back is all we're hearing is complaints from the public about the streets. Oh, of course you are, because you've neglected it all these years. When I say you, not this council, just over time, mm-hmm. the the public safety, the response times are so high. Yes, they are, because the numbers are down in the number of police officers that you have. Why why wouldn't they be down? So when you start at the root cause, and then you say we're going to attack that problem. Now we have ten million on an annual basis for streets, in addition to the bonds for streets. But the $10 million that you don't have to issue debt. This year, in this year's budget, we put $20 million for streets. So you show, hey, that's the root cause. We're attacking that root cause. On the police officers, we're up 145 positions. We're barely today where we were 20 years ago. When you can put it in that perspective, it gets their attention. The other thing we said, I, we put codes under police. Why? We're painting the codes vehicles like police vehicles. No, they're not police officers, but that gives you more of a presence in the community. We also have trailer overwatch uh, systems that are video cameras that we put in large gatherings. We have more video cameras in downtown and other parts of the city where where it's more uh, considered in areas where we want more video cameras to capture footage of, of different things that might occur that are of criminal nature. So we've got those kinds of, of things in place that we didn't have before. We have a, we have a citizen patrol uh, volunteer program that we're in, initiating this fall. So again, you start attacking the problem and start showing people those things, and that doesn't get across in just one quick soundbite. You know, there's a lot of quick soundbites that people can say, well, I don't like this, and boom, that's a soundbite, versus what I just explained. That's not a soundbite. But we're attacking the root cause of those kinds of problems. So that's, that's probably the most challenging part to get that across. So we have to come up with things like, hey, we're better, we're safer, we're cleaner. And then talk about how are we better? We're better because we have better amenities throughout the city, like the amenities I talked about. Like we now have facilities on the east side of the city. We didn't have them before. We have downtown development that occurred with, with the state money. We've, we've uh, redeveloped Co- the Cohen Stadium area by putting a water park there, and we're going to put the police headquarters there. And we're working on developing that and bringing more developers and more business to the Cohen site. So when you can then start talking about how you're addressing those problems, you start saying how we're cleaner, how we're better, and how we're safer through these kinds of programs. Of course, I'm not knowledgeable in this subject, so hopefully you can, you can walk me through. Um, am I hearing that maybe the council, the mayor, right now we'll talk about the role that, that the, the, the three of them play, 
But is this, does it, it sounds to me like everyone has different agendas on based on maybe one wants to be popular with whatever they're hearing on from the from from the citizens from the community maybe you want your agenda is hey let, let's take a look at what is maybe the the problem that we had had for the longest time is that kind of like what i'm hearing that sometimes everyone has i'm not gonna call it different agenda but maybe the priority is not the same for at, at all levels is that what i'm hearing no um what i've uh See, that's my point, and that it's difficult to explain exactly, you know, to message the type of things that are happening in the city and the improvements that are being made. We have all coalesced to work together on a strategic plan. That strategic plan has eight goals, and in those eight goals, it talks about the things that we want to improve in the city, and they help us with the vision statement. And the vision statement is uh, El Paso will have safe and beautiful neighborhoods a vibrant regional economy and exceptional recreational, cultural, and educational opportunities with a high-powered government. So we then, through the strategic plan, do everything we can to make those things happen so that when we go and look 20 years down the road and you look back, what did we accomplish? Better streets, better better park amenities, better libraries, better uh, ballparks. You know, we have now soccer, soccer, state, uh, excuse me, soccer fields that we didn't have on the east side. Um, so we attempt to have that plan all kind of encompass what our what our goals and, and objectives are. How is the city able to prioritize like what's needed? Because again, maybe someone or a level government can say, you know what, the streets, it's raining a lot, we need the sewer system. And then how do we know it's downtown? Sometimes I'm sure you can't do everything at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, budget-wise or maybe even the, the manpower for it. How's the process of saying, you know what, we do need to work on, on, on funding the police so we can have more police officers. At the same time, we need to work on the streets or you know what, we also need to work downtown. How uh, Walk us through the process of making sure that we take care of priority one, two, and three. That's a very good question. So what we do is we have resident surveys. So we ask the residents through surveys that we put in place. We also have uh, what's called the council request process for all nine of them, uh, the, all nine members. Uh, the mayor and all and eight council members and so every request that comes in through their district we we capture that every every month every day every week and then we capture that data for the end of the year so we use the resident survey we use the request to get in their district we also have a budget chime in survey so we hear that's more anecdotal because that's not a survey and neither is the CR process both of those are anecdotal but they pretty much match up to the residential survey so we use all those three mechanisms for the inputs that we get, we also have community meetings with the districts, and so we use that those inputs as well. We capture all that data, and that provides the direction for us in terms of what we do. We then put that in a strategic plan. We present that to the council. That gets integrated into the budget process, and then those are the things that are that are then our priorities. And our priorities are streets, police, public safety, uh, health and quality of life, you know, for like parks. Those are the top four that we hear from the resident survey. So that those are the top four areas that get funded, most of the funding in, in the budget. Nice. This process that you're talking about, was this process in place before you? Did, uh, how? No. Okay, let's talk no, about no, how this process became, because I didn't know about this, and yeah. it definitely makes sense as far as yeah. having input, not only like from the mayor or council or yourself, 
it's obviously this is what we need based on different exactly. uh, avenues, right? Exactly. But talk about the process, how we got to that process. So it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the strategic plan. The city did not have a strategic plan before 2014. In 2014, we put one together uh, with council input, and then council approved it in January of 15. So that was the initial beginnings of again having a plan I talked about my parents talked about they had a plan they executed it we didn't have a plan so we needed a plan so we reinforce that plan by having residential surveys that we do so those surveys are sent out to the public we get those back so that's an input that's really the basis behind it we then overlay that with the CR process those are the requests that each council member and the mayor's office gets from the community. So we then capture all that data. We've been doing that for six years. So we have all that data of six years of not only the resident survey, but the CR process. We then also have a chime in process where people get to chime in on the budget. So we've been doing that for five, six years. So that data we use too. We then have focus groups that we do with that chime in process. We ask you, like if you filled one out, we'll ask you in the survey, are you willing to be on a focus group? You say yes. So then we have focus groups. We then have uh, community meetings that we do in districts. We get those, those inputs. I just did one on Friday at the Northeast and got those inputs. We took it a step further, and I didn't mention this earlier. We also have a student budget advisory committee we uh, go out and teach 400 kids throughout the city our budget process. Then they present that budgeting process to the council. And so we give those 400 some odd kids an opportunity to give us inputs. Guess what? Those, those four priorities I mentioned, they have the same four priorities. They're in different order, but they have the same priorities, which is kind of interesting. So those four priorities I mentioned, public safety, streets, uh, the community's health. And I think because of COVID, that really kind of surfaced to the top. And in parks, park improvements, those are the top four that get the most attention. It's funny, how, at least talking from my perspective, of course, that's funny how sometimes the easiest thing to do is just complain about something, but not understanding, not knowing the things that we can do as, as community to also help whichever situation we're complaining about. Absolutely. That's a big takeaway, at least for me, because um, again, um, it's not only about complaining, about seeing numbers. Let's talk about your race um, now that we're talking about this subject. Sure. Um, again, I, the social media that I follow, when it was announced that you're up for a race, 5% putting you close to the 400 or at $400,000 a year. As far as, um, again, this outlets um, from the news, mm -hmm. um, not, all, not every uh, station or channel, but from social media, Instagram, from Facebook, they hear $400,000 for, for Tommy Gonzalez, and you can just imagine the comments. I don't know how aware you are of those negative comments that they don't understand why someone should be earning that, or maybe that that money should be going towards something else. And in my mind is that, you know what, that was me with a limited mindset before. Mm -hmm. Not understanding, not doing my research as far as what you bring to the table. And again, this is my opinion, and I'm not saying this because you're here, of course, but if we want to hold the talent, meaning you, you know, you can easily go to another city, and if the council, the mayor, and like the, because um, you have a scorecard, you have a progress report, if that is working, you don't give this man a million dollars. Well, if you, I'm not saying that, but what I'm trying to say is that now that we understand the value that someone brings to the table, now we can give your opinion. If after I know all this, you know what, I still think, okay, it is my opinion, but at least it's an informed opinion of everything in the table, not only judging or again, why is Tommy Gonzalez uh, why he should, why um, Toby Gonzalez deserves a race. 
Right. Can you expand on that? And what are your thoughts on, on maybe the, the criticism that comes from, from that alone? Right, absolutely. So the way those contracts work is that you negotiate those with the cities you choose to go work in. And I know when I worked in, in Irving, you know, we saved the city $82 million over the course of a seven, eight-year period. We've saved a lot more here. Uh, and we did that a lot in Irving through Lean Six Sigma practices, and we, did, we do that here as well. And so I know that I remember one time that when we were negotiating, I told the council, just don't pay me, this is in Irving, don't pay me a salary, just pay me 10% of the savings. And they said, no, 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 because that would be $8 million. I said, okay. So the, then we negotiated what we negotiated, and I got a lot of uh, um, um, notoriety or people uh, writing about what I made there. And uh, here, uh, I negotiated a contract here, and it is what it is, and, and I've saved what, what I've saved in terms of getting our team together to save the dollars. That, and I mentioned earlier, we've saved over $220 million. We've brought in over 270 new dollars. Uh, those aren't tax increases. Those are dollars from the outside that we didn't have before. So, the, you know, in, in terms of, and I've said that here too about a percentage and said, no, we don't want to pay you a percentage of the savings or percentage of the new revenue. And so we negotiate a, a contract. And so those contracts are negotiated for services that are rendered. And so it's a contract that, that I have with the city. Now, I mentioned before, um, I grew up the way I grew up. And I remember there was one person as I was growing up in the system uh, in city management who told me, don't ever be, um, he goes, if you don't ask, you don't get. And I always tell people whenever they come in and negotiate with me, I said, don't, don't be afraid to negotiate what you think you're worth. I mean, all I can say is no, or, or you might be surprised and I say yes. And so um, I think that's important for people to, to, to hear and for young people to hear. And we do live in America. And, you know, what I was raised uh, to think and believe is that if you put in the hard work and if you do your best and you're, you, you hopefully will be successful, you have the opportunity to be successful in America. I know that there's a lot of people that have different thoughts on different folks that make whatever they make. I know I don't make uh, near as much as a lot of other people that do a lot less uh, in this community and have a lot less of a budget. I'm not going to name who they are, but they have a lot less of a budget than I have, and they have a lot less people than they manage, uh, and, and they make more than I do. And, and um, so it, it's interesting, um, but my position gets focused on quite a bit. And I accept that. I mean, it comes with the with the job, and so I, I don't mind answering the questions. Uh, I, I I remember uh, having a conversation on Friday with a community group, and I said, "Look, you can ask me whatever you want." I said, "And I'm going to answer every single one of the questions." So you might not like the answer, but I'm going to answer it. I'm going to stand here and answer every one of your questions. And I did. I didn't leave till I answered every question. At the end of the day, um, of course, um, there there has to be results delivered in order for us to put ourselves in a situation that people see our value. And in your case, again, um, there's, can you, you talk about, can you talk a little bit about the, the, the report card? I know there's different components of how you specifically get evaluated on. Talk a little bit about that. So maybe someone not familiar with that, we can also um, try to understand the process. I get evaluated on the strategic plan, mm -hmm. on the go eight goals that we have. I get evaluated on, on how we manage our organization you know, not only how we do strategic planning, but how we develop leaders in the organization, how we focus on the workforce. A lot of people don't know this. We have town hall meetings with our workforce. We have employee uh, town hall meetings. We have employee surveys. 
And then when, when I get that information, we make adjustments. We have put in a Shape It Up program for our employees that they can earn up to $150 a, a month to help offset their health care increases. It also reduces the health care costs for the city because if they're in better shape, they're not going to go to the doctor as much and it's going to reduce our overall liabilities for the city. So that helps the taxpayer. So those are programs we didn't have before. We didn't have uh, training programs in, in leadership. Uh, development. We didn't have training programs in Lean Six Sigma, which is standardizing deviation and elim- eliminating waste. That's helped us save millions of dollars for the organization. Um, case in point, we were able to just like something real simple in that when we had um, a, a lines replacements for voiceover uh, IP, which is going to a new system before I got here, we still had all these landlines, all these phones in people's offices. And yet you didn't need it. You could do the same thing off the computer. So once we did a Lean Six Sigma project on that, we saved $600,000 a year. So I paid for my salary three, you know, two, two times over because when I started, I was making less. So that, that paid for my salary two times over in just that one project. So we did things like that that we hadn't done before. So those are the type of things that we do in, in our organization. So not only focusing on the workforce and strategic planning and leadership, but also customer focus. We were able to uh, do irrigation repairs in, in parks. Instead of it taking two days, now it takes us less than two hours to do an irrigation repair. Uh, we, we used to uh, uh, go, we used to have the fire station, have the fire trucks go to the garage, and they would, it would take them a day, sometimes a day and a half, to do just general repairs. Now the garage, the fleet department, goes out to the fire station. So that saves in overtime, so it saves in fuel, saves in, in better customer responses whenever we have a fire. So we put those type of things in place that we didn't have before. So that customer focus, better service for our customer, better service for our, the people who do the work for our customer. Organizational focus, also we um, focused on knowledge management and results. So those areas, along with the strategic plan, and the values of the organization is what I get get evaluated on. So those those are all based on the results that we have each and every year. Nice. The only thing that I encourage people to do before, and not only on this subject, but any subject, before we throw in the hate, the complaints, or the we don't understand. And again, I, I remember vividly this comment that someone said, how can this person get so much? He even lives, he doesn't even live in El Paso. He lives in Dallas. And I'm like, Okay, that, that, that was very strange. But that's uh, funny because we've lived in El Paso for seven years. Trust me, what <laughs> I'm thinking is this person maybe I don't think I'd be able to show up at 6 in the morning with you to work out every day if I didn't live here. Wait, and that comic, he was very vocal, like, and, and he lives in Dallas. But again, maybe you do have that opinion. Maybe after knowing all your accomplishments, maybe, or the things that, that, that you have been part of, once you n- understand that, maybe I can still say, you know what? Nope. My opinion is that maybe he should get paid less. Okay. That's a respect well, opinion w- from someone. Well, I would tell you something. But understanding. In, in, uh, as far as people like that, I tell you what, I look at what football players get, get paid, and I, and I played football in college, and I won one of those big contracts. And I'm like, that person isn't worth $160 million for four years. I say that all day long. They haven't won a playoff game. They haven't won <laughs> uh, a Super Bowl. Not, that person's not worth $160 million. So, yeah, I can see people saying what they say. Uh, but in terms of results, uh, in, in football terms, we've won some playoff games here. And, and we've gotten to the end. We need to, we're, we're close to, to winning the Super Bowl here. And so we've, we've made some progress here in a lot of areas. 
Uh, very proud of the progress we made. I mean, you know, Sun Metro seven years ago had a $27 million hole in, in their budget, $27 million deficit, meaning they were in the hole by $27 million. They're up $12 million today. So that's a huge turnaround. The fund balance was rated when I showed up. We've increased the fund balance, which is our savings account, by $41 million. I mean, that's significant. We have a rate stabilization account for $16 million that we didn't have before. That helps us offset some of these challenges that we're seeing. So last year we didn't do a tax increase. This year we didn't do a tax increase. And we're decreasing the tax for seniors and the disabled this year. So when we're able to have those kinds of results by the work that we do as a team that all, all work towards accomplishing the strategic plan, those are results, those are playoff wins that, you know, that we didn't have before that we're working on, on, on having uh, today. I'm glad we talked about that. Yeah, me too. Um, Senor, let me ask you this. My house taxes, I don't know what role you play. Maybe you play no role. Maybe you do. Why do they keep getting really high? Living Horizon, by the way, they're, in my opinion, they're crazy high. And when I look at um, also my friends, my, my, my immediate surroundings, that's something like that it's a subject that we talk about a lot, which mm -hmm. is house taxes. What role you play first? And why are they increasing year over year, aside from everything that, that we're working on as a city? So the Central Appraisal District is the one that assesses those valuations, mm -hmm. not us. And they're a, they're a byproduct of the state, okay. not, not, not the city. And so they do that. So now when the values go up, the values have been going up by 12, 14, 18, 20 percent in other cities for a long time. It hasn't so much here. Now, the last couple of years, that, that, that's been the case. It's gone up dramatically. COVID has exacerbated that problem. COVID has caused uh, used cars to, to be bought for more. Like if you have a used car, you go, you're going to get top dollar for it. Uh, the cars are, are not selling at, you know, you can't get a deal anymore because that chip that goes for the car, they can't get it. So now they have a low supply. So low supply, high demand. And I think that's what the housing market has done. And so the house, that, that part of it has increased the values of our homes here. And that's what's causing this exacerbation of, of increased costs. I know that we were going to downsize here. We lived in a bigger house when the kids were here, and we were looking to downsize. So we downsized, and we were looking. Everything was through the roof. We just got lucky to get to, to get to get a home that we we felt like was reasonable. But the pricing has gone up because of COVID. And you would have, you know, people scratch their head. Why is it going? Why did housing go up? Why did cars? You know, why is why are they selling like hotcakes? Uh, COVID had an impact on, on those type of things. Now, the values here overall for us went up 4.2% in value. That means the same property, like let's say this is worth $100, that went up 4.2%. So for all the properties in the city, we got a value average increase of 4.2%. I have heard the stories of some people saying mine went up 15%, went up uh, 30%. Well, by, by law, you, you don't pay more than 10%. You're only going to be charged 10% if yours went up that high. You can also challenge those values by them. Uh, in terms of what role we play, so when we look at those dollars, we guesstimated that the value increase would be 4.3%. It came in at 4.2%. So we didn't see a value increase. We did see a value increase in the TERS because it didn't come in as high. So there was $3 million there that we then assigned to streets. So that's where that money went towards. In terms of how we can help the, the citizens, last year during COVID, we did not increase the taxes. Uh, this year, we did not increase the tax rate, and we lowered it for seniors and the disabled. So that's how we can help. That's, how, that's what kind of role we play.
Nice. Glad I asked that. That was more of a personal question, but I'm sure a lot that that's um, in a lot of people's mind as well. Absolutely. Nice. Um, Senor, let's talk about, we, we talked a little bit already about the, the public perspective, perception of, of you, of your roles. Um, how difficult has it been? Of course, with your experience, you already have that everywhere you went, but how stressful is it at, like when you have uh, people giving you pushback? Uh, I don't know, maybe not as specific to, in this case, a salary, but maybe different projects that they don't agree with you. Um, how do you deal with stress? Talk to us about that uh, process. The, the process of people giving feedback on projects that are getting done out there, it's been pretty positive. A lot of what we've been doing is based on those surveys that I mentioned, whether it's, resident, whether it's the residential survey that's done throughout the community, whether it's the chime-in process, the CR process, whether it's the Student Budget Advisory Committee, uh, all those different ways uh, that we get information from the public, we've been working on those. And then we then categorize that and prioritize and fund them, and we've been getting a lot done. So even like this last uh, event that I went to where we presented information, they had, they had a lot of good questions, and some would consider some were tough. I didn't think they were tough questions. I think some people were very frustrated because of of the question some of the things that they were talking about but we answered i answered all those questions and gave them facts and information about the things that they talked about they talked about streets i said i told them about the 10 million we now have each year that we're going to put 17 million and we were going to recommend another 3 million so i answered that question uh, we talked about taxes i answered the question like i answered the question for you just now so i answered that part of it and I talked to them about public safety and how we've increased that. They wanted to know when certain projects would be finished. And I gave them the answer to that, summer of 22, for the two questions that they asked with regard to those projects. So we don't get complaints about what's getting done. We get complaints they want more done. And so what I explained to them, that costs money. And so the fact that we've been able to do that without increasing the taxes for the last two years, that's significant. I also tell them, you know, how we compare with other cities in terms of cost of living and overall tax rate and how that impacts El Paso and how that impacts other cities and how we're in a better position than other, other cities. And then they say, well, we don't want to hear about other cities. We live here in El Paso. I said, I understand that, but we have a very good situation here in El Paso, and we've improved a lot of the areas that have been neglected over time. So those are the type of things that we discuss in those kind of meetings. They're very productive, very fruitful. I think that the public asks very engaging questions, and we give them those kinds of answers to those questions because they deserve it. Let's talk about maybe the projects that have not worked the way that you envision, the, the, the times that maybe a specific idea, process, project did not work the way you want it. Can you give us some examples of that and how you were able to deal with those situations? Well, we when we do projects, we get community input. Mm -hmm. So we actually engage the community. So we don't really have situations where projects don't go the way we want because it's not what we want. It's what the public wants. So when we engage the public and get that feedback and then we execute on that, it's, it's a very productive process and, and good results come out of that. I know that we gave an update to the council today on the public improvement uh, program that the that the community passed in these last couple of years, and the council was very pleased with it. They had a lot of insightful questions, and we had good answers for them. So, we we get we get a very good um, very good feedback when it comes to how the the projects get done. Nice. Now, what did you learn specifically when you were the city manager of Irving, Texas, that you brought immediately to El Paso? 
the uh, the process that I mentioned with strategic planning, the uh, the way you can engage your organization with Lean Six Sigma practices, how you can save uh, on doing things more efficiently, uh, the fact that we engage more of our leaders. Like for example, over in Irving, we had what was called the 100. We had 100 managers throughout the city. We were about 2,100. When I left, we were 1,800. We reduced the workforce by 10%, and we increased the service levels by double digits across the board. Some people didn't like the fact that we reduced the workforce, but it saved us money, and we were able to lower the budget every year. So when we uh, put that in place, one of the things we did, like I said, we do employee town hall meetings here in El Paso. We did them there in, in Irving as well. One of the things we did, though, is we, we were interviewing different layers of our organization. A lot of people don't do that. And we did that in order to, to get a better understanding of how to lead the organization. So those 100 that were middle managers, we asked them how many of them wanted to promote, stay in their position, or be part of a bigger team to get better at what they do. And we kind of got a one-third, one-third, one-third. In, in other words, one-third wanted to promote, the other third wanted to stay where they were at, the other ones just wanted to get involved in other programs within the city but didn't want to leave. We kind of got the same feedback here. So we did that here in our organization, and that helped a lot because it helps communicate with that l middle layer. And our middle layer here is the 500. We have 500 that are in that middle management category. So I communicate with them via email. We have them on an email string, and that communication helps lead the whole organization because not only do I speak to the layer that reports to me directly, but then I speak to that middle management group on a variety of messages. So I learned that in Irving. We apply that here, and it's worked extremely well. Nice. While you were there, you got criticized um, by running an um, uh, army-like management. Yeah. How will you describe your management style now? I think it's very similar in that when when they said that about me, I said, you should be so lucky that we run this place like the army, like the military, because the military spends billions of dollars on leadership. And as I mentioned earlier, you get placed in positions of, of stressful environments and you have to lead people uh, into different situations. And so, yeah, I think that that's a compliment. I don't see that as a bad thing. So that's how I responded to that. And that's how I would respond here. If, if someone would accuse me of running it like the military, I would say that that's a compliment. However, I think that in terms of that type of observation, I don't think that people say that now, even though we do run it a lot like what the principles are in the military. Uh, we get a lot of inputs, a lot of feedback, and I don't think you say you can say that about the military, about the military that you ask everybody for input. But we do that. We, we ask uh, not only in town hall meetings, we ask them for input, but the middle managers, like I mentioned, we ask them for input. And then we take actions based on that. We ask the community for input, input and we take actions based on that. So I think we do a lot uh, more listening. And I think as I've developed in my career, the older that I get, that's a, some, an area that I can say that people can say we do a lot of listening. And then we take action based on what we hear. And then we just we just execute off of that whole thing that I talked about that you said earlier that about my dad, no lo digas aslo, meaning get it done get it done and, and the difference between what my dad said and what I have to do in this position is that you have to then talk about what you get done I don't like doing that as much you know I'd, I'd rather just get it done and people see it but here you have to you have to message and you have to articulate what gets done or otherwise people don't don't see it don't hear it and they're not reminded of the fact that look we were here 
you know, 20 years ago, we were here seven years ago, and now we're here today. And look at all the adjustments and improvements that have been made. You have to remind people about those things that have been put in place. Nice. Senor, how are you able to support your leaders, see the same vision, make sure you develop them as leaders as well? How have you been able to do that so they can also share the same mindset, kind of like the, the, the eyes on the long-term goal, yeah. and then kind of like the process? Um, can you give us a little bit as far as how you do it, how successful you've been, and what are some of the things that you can still work as far as to get us all in the in the same playing field as far as the, the goal and everything else? Well, included? the first and foremost thing that you have to have in place is a vision for the whole organization. And they all, they all had input in it. They had input. The council had input. So that vision statement that I mentioned, it's for our organization and what we see for our community. We want to have safe neighborhoods. We want to have beautiful neighborhoods. We want to have vi a vibrant regional economy. We, we want to have exceptional recreational, uh, cultural, and educational opportunities. And we want a high-powered government, meaning we want a high-powered organization that knows what it's doing, has a good plan in place, it's executing off that plan, has good systems and processes, has methodologies in place like Lean Six Sigma, and gets the results, and then reports out on those results. So we are all on the same page. So that's how, that's how we get them all on board. We're all rowing in the same direction because we all have the same vision. When developing leaders, what are maybe the one thing or two things that you focus on the most? They need to be strong communicators. They need to be charismatic because you can't lead unless you can communicate well and you can get people to follow you. You have to have a good plan. You need to know how, what a good plan looks like. You need to be trained in certain areas like Lean Six Sigma or the criteria that I mentioned in strategic planning, leadership, workforce focus, customer focus, and knowledge management results organizational focus those seven criteria you have to be really good at those things so those are the type of things that we find extremely valuable in in our leaders and and we talk about them leading not managing we tell them anybody can manage very few can lead and I said we just want leaders so if you're not going to lead we don't want you here we just want leaders we want people that will lead others that will look at what resources they have or don't have and work like like the Dickens to get that for them um, case in point, I know that seven years ago when we started this strategic plan, I know that a lot of people were complaining about parks. Well, they didn't have the equipment that they needed, so we bought that for them. Pothole repairs, they didn't have pothole repair equipment. I know we went from 12,000 potholes a year to 76,000 76, potholes a year. That doesn't happen by accident. It happens by listening to your people and getting them the resources that they need. So we give them and show them that example, no different than our parents, and then we expect them to do the same thing with their kids meaning in their department. So it starts from home, and you bring that, what you learn from home, to work, and you teach others, and you want to develop others because you develop others and you have them lead other people by taking care of them. And that doesn't mean you protect them. That means you take care of them by giving them what they need to be successful. And then their success becomes your success. And then that has a ripple effect. So that's the most important thing for us in uh, developing leaders. Thank you for that, Senor. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that dynamic of the city council, the mayor, and yourself. Can you tell someone like myself that maybe you're not very familiar with the process, but what role does each play on a project, on an initiative, on something that the city's working on? Um, the ideas can come. I know you talked a little bit about the, 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 the projects and the, the surveys, the community, and all that, all those layers, 
but talk to us a little bit about the dynamic that each of the roles play and and a little bit of, of how, um, again, for someone like me that we don't fully understand the process, can you describe that process for me? So the mayor and council serve as a board of directors, mm -hmm. and the mayor serves as the, like, the chairman of the board, okay. and you have all of them that are board members on that board. And they champion different initiatives in their district and or across the city. So they, they've, been a, they've been incredibly helpful in championing certain issues throughout the city, and it's our job to give them the tools they need for them to be successful. So we give them the background, the information, so that they're able to share that with the people that they lead in their district that ask questions of them. But they very much serve as a governing board uh, to the recommendations that we bring to them. But all the things we bring to them are based on the strategic plan that is fueled by their direction, is fueled by those surveys that I mentioned. And so all of that is put together, and that's given to us as kind of our guiding light. And then we work on that, and everything we bring forward to them that they vote on are, is based on that strategic plan and, and based on the areas that they champion in their communities. Can you give us a specific example? Cohen. Like, Cohen okay. is a good example. All right. You know, you had that district representative really pushing for us to do things there. So we presented different options, mm -hmm. and council approved those options. And then we, we presented different funding options, then they approved those options. So now you have a water park there, and now you're going to have a police headquarters there. And then you have another district member, like in District 2, where we're going to relocate the police headquarters, and they want to redevelop that site. So she's championing that okay. issue. So we're making those things happen based on their overarching guidance on, on things that they want, that what they say they want, those two things are within the strategic plan. So it's something that the whole council says they want. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. And you have to work closely with, with the board, in this case, with the council, and then with us in order to get things done. But in terms of the day-to-day, -day, I'm charged with the day-to-day -day execution of what they want to get done. And, and I serve at their pleasure, meaning the council as a board. Okay. In that specific example, how about the mayor? Like, did he have anything to do there? Um, in that It's example. the same situation okay. in that the mayor and council serve as a governing board. So they champion certain initiatives that they want to see happen. But all of it comes within a strategic plan, and the council has to vote on it. They vote on it as a body, and then we execute off of that. So it's, it's very much a governance structure from which they, they serve a, a policy area, and we serve on the operation side. Okay. Thank you for that. Let's yep. talk about coronavirus. Um, you already talked a little bit about how, um, how it was managed, right? Talk to us about some of the, the things that we were pl uh, put in place to follow that process. What were some in your action plan? Step one, step two, step three, when we had the situation again um, back in, well, last year. So it was very chaotic yeah. uh, for the entire world and the country whenever that occurred. Right off the bat, what we did is we put in a cross-functional team in place. And what that means is it's a multidisciplinary team of leaders. So we had about 11 or 12 executives that we put in charge of a variety of things. One, we put in charge of testing. One, we put in charge of code enforcement, the enforcement of the rules that were put in place. The other one we put in charge of, of communication, you know, and so on and so forth. So we had these 11, 12 areas that we charged them with in order to attack the problem from a comprehensive standpoint. We even had a section for businesses and recovery of businesses, for rental assistance, and so on and so forth. Uh, we, we had to make it comprehensive because it wasn't just one thing. That, that, that virus attacked us as a, as a community. I mean, it, it, it hit our pocketbooks. It hit our psyche. 
It hit our living rooms. It hit everything. You know, it hit our hearts. It hit our our soul. You know, we had people we lost, friends, family members that have passed. So it hit us in all direction. So we put this team together in order to address all these areas all at the same time. So we were having these very lengthy presentations to the council because they had multiple questions on a variety of things. And so initially, the first meeting, I think the longest, it was like 11 hours. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, it was 9, 10, 11 hours. And then it got down to 8 hours, 7 hours, 6 hours. Then it was a consistent 4 or 5 hours. Then we got down to 3 hours. And then towards the very end, when we were having more success, more success, more success, you know, it got to quick updates. Like now we give updates and they take about half an hour today. But we still give those detailed updates for the council to know what's going on. And as I said before, at one point we were the most infected on the planet. We came out of it with the best vaccine rollout in the entire United States, which I would say the world. And we're not saying that. The CDC said that and Rockefeller said that. And our mayor was able to uh, speak at an event where we were featured as the best, us in Madison, Wisconsin. And the things we were talking about, we were, we were miles ahead of them. So that's why I say I think we were the best. Uh, they, they said that we and Madison, Wisconsin were the best, but I, I think we were better than they were because our mayor came back very enthusiastic saying, you know, we were talking about all these things and they weren't doing any of those. So um, it was very successful in terms of how we were able to put that initial team together and then the, the, at the end of the day, the type of results we got. So today, 81% have at least one vaccine and 70% are fully vaccinated. And we need to get to 75% to be a herd immunity. How does that compare to the rest of the, the world or the state and the, and the nation? At the national level, they've barely got to 70% with the first dose. We've been there for over six weeks. And um, a second dose, so we're, we're like, you know, double digits ahead on both those areas, on single dose and second dose, and not only at the national level, but at the state level as well. As well. Of course, the, the end result um, was a positive one, of course, um, a lot um, to talk about there. But why is it that El Paso got there to begin with? I know the plan after that, we were able to overcome that. But what happened? Who dropped the ball? How the, the ball was dropped that we got to the, the, to that situation to begin with? I think the ball dropped when the virus hit okay. hit the country. And so I think that that's when the ball dropped. And From it, and government, it, there's nothing that we can say, you know, and maybe we could have followed at that time a different process? I think that at that particular time, we did follow a process. We put a team together that hit all those different functional areas. And it was what it was. I mean... Uh, you had people that that wanted to still get out. Uh, you had, you know, it's tough to corral uh, um, any people, you know, in any part of the country. And we also have um, the border to contend with, and we have a synonymous, uh, a synergistic kind of uh, uh, symbiotic uh, regional f flavor here. And and we didn't have the same type of of um, of, of instruments in Mexico that we do here. There's a variety of factors. I, I think that we only have so much control over what we could do and not do. Um, I think we were very aggressive in the beginning. Um, and I also think that we had to follow state guidelines as well. And we at the time had uh, our governor that thought certain things. And I think the local folks thought another. And we had to marry those two up because, I mean, if we go against the state, that could mean state funding for El Paso and it could hurt us even more. So there was a lot of issues like that that we, need to, we needed to work through. 
Um, so it was a combination of a lot of things. And so it was what it was, and we accept uh, whatever responsibility we have for that. Okay, let me, let, let me ask you on, on County Judge Ricardo Samaniego. As you know, I own a, a small business. I, again, very confused. I'm sure a lot of people got confused when the mayor said one thing when we had that situation, which it seems everything's clear now. But at that point, okay, so what role does he play and what role does the mayor play? And at any point where you also part of that, as far as maybe providing advice, maybe guidance, talk to us about that. What, what role, first of all, going back to the county judge, Ricardo Samaniego, what was the role that he played there and why was that issue going on? In the state of emergency, the county judge has a final say. Okay. However, if the governor is directing a, a certain guidance, um, that's what needs to be followed. So that's what we did uh, at the local level, at the city level. We followed the guidance from the governor. And so, and we also supported the, the judge as much as we could. And so we work very closely with him as well. And in terms of our guidance was that we, you know, we have to follow state law. So that, that's what happened there. It's that simple. Okay. But at, at the, you think there was an issue at when we had the situation on miscommunication or it was just that no. two individuals no. were very passionate no. about no. how to handle there this? There was not a miscommunication. It was a disagreement. Okay. And that's the long and short of it. I mean, you had a governor that said a certain thing. Um, as a municipality, we followed that, and the county judge um, disagreed with that. And I respect that. You know, he disagreed with that because he was very, as you said, passionate in his views. And so we were we supported the governor, and we supported the county judge, and we supported our mayor at the time. And we just had to work through those issues, and, and they disagreed. And we then had to look at you know what we needed to do, and we needed to follow state law based on the legal recommendations we were given. Thank you for clearing that for me. Yeah. Senor, what's our current situation? I'm not very familiar. Hopefully this episode ages well about the cult, the very, the Delta variant with coronavirus going mm -hmm. on right now. What is the current situation and what, what is the plan? Is there a plan already as far as what would happen if X number of, yeah. I don't know, new cases? So the Delta variant uh -huh. is here now, but we have a, a, a low number compared to other communities. The, our infection rate is lower than other communities as well. Our infection rate is three per 100,000, where the uh, the state's at 25 per 100,000, and the nation's at 23 per 100,000. Uh, the problem is we're at three per 100,000, which in the numbers, what that means to us, we're, we have 1,500 people that got infected as opposed to 500 two or three months ago. So the numbers, you know, they are what they are, but we have a lot less people uh, than other cities and other parts of the country. So what we're stressing is that the people wear their masks, uh, people social distance, and, and people wash their hands with sanitizer as often as possible. So going back to the basic protocols that we had in place before, and just be careful. And, and if, you, if you've been vaccinated and you're around other people, just don't get so touchy-feely with them. And just keep your distance, wash your hands, and wear your masks as often as possible. Okay. What's your personal opinion on where we're heading um, with that? Again, this is just. I, more I on think a our community level. is on the on the upside of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're at seventy percent fully vaccinated. We are five percent away from being at herd immunity, and you know that's the recent guidance from the CDC. I mean, that could change. They could say, well, we want you to be at eighty now or eighty-five. But we're we're heading in the right direction. Our community has responded extremely well. Very proud of El, El Pasoans and, and all of us here in terms of how we've stepped up to this virus. 
and we're in a very good position right now. We still have to be vigilant. We have to be very, very uh, considerate of others and, and be careful around, about our surroundings and just go back to the basics of what we put out early on with protocols relative to socializing with people and keeping your hands clean as often as possible and you know, covering up as often as you can. Nice. Thank you, Sam. Mm-hmm. Staying in the topic of events that, of course, crisis that we have had in the city, I definitely want to talk about August 3rd of 2019. Today's August 3rd as well, um, the, the two-year anniversary. Do you remember what it like um, in that moment when it happened? Of course, I mean, there, there were so many things, but first of all, what is it that you recall? What was the city thinking at that moment? Right. Can you walk us through as far as what happened in those moments? Well, it was definitely a hate crime, and when I first got the call, my heart sank into my stomach and just really felt, you know, very sad, and my heart went out to the families who had lost people. Um, It demonstrated that we're a region. You know, it wasn't just people from El Paso, it was people from Mexico, and even people that were visiting at the time, and again, it demonstrated what we're all about in terms of we're one region and that we shop like that, we eat like that, we drink like that, we play like that together. And that's what it showed. And what it, what the first thing I thought of is that th- this isn't going to keep us down. We're going to show what we're about and the way this community responded. You know, other people in other cities, whenever they're throwing water on police officers, our community was bringing water to police officers. So the the love the care and the fortitude and the characteristics that were demonstrated by our community that 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 character that you can't describe but you can see uh, we saw throughout our community um, that entire time and yeah I just want those 23 souls to to rest in peace and for us not ever to forget them and and to um, you know, help their families as much as we can. And so when this community rallied behind and raised money for those families, um, we did everything we could for them and to show them the affection and the love that comes from a caring community like El Paso. I agree. At a personal level, Senator, even though you're talking about it already, how did it affect you? Um, of course, the least thing we expect from El Paso. I don't know if you share the same view or not, but when I first heard the news, like I, I just couldn't believe it. This doesn't happen in El Paso, right? Mm-hmm. At a personal level, um, what were your, your your thoughts or some of the things that um, that was crossing your mind at that moment? Well, a lot of people think a lot of these ill thoughts about El Paso. And the first thing I told people that were calling me, I said, well, this person wasn't from El Paso. They drove all the way from North Texas to commit a hate crime so it wasn't someone here that did it so if anything you know we're a very peaceful community very loving community and I know right after the event there was a football game that had been canceled between uh, Plano and one of our schools in the YISD district and I remember some council members calling me and saying they can't do this to our kids and I remember just I mean I was that floored me I mean and so I said, no, you're right. And they were like, you need to call the Cowboys because they knew working in Irving that I had a relationship uh, with some of the uh, senior executives there. And so I said, okay, I'll do the best that I can. So I called them. 
uh, to for them to host this game at, at Frisco at the Star because I thought we cannot show these kids a bad example on something so horrible and then as adults show them how not to do this and when you had adults wanting to cancel the game because of publicity or because they thought that our our kids or our parents were going to do something to them, I, I don't know why they canceled. But it was all kinds of reasons like that. And I thought, how horrible of an example is that to show to our kids? And so why are we going to put poor salt on this wound instead of doing something that maybe these kids will never forget in a, in a good way and make something negative into a positive? So when the council members called me, I, I did call the Cowboys, and I didn't do anything. The, the Cowboys were the ones that got it done, and, and I was very grateful to them and worked with uh, Dr. De La Torre, who's, a, who's a, doing a great job at YISD, and worked with him to get that game back on, and the game got put back on there. And, and So that's what I remember about how this community came together and how we don't give up on our kids, we don't give up on our community, and we need to show a good example and show our character when things are, are at, at, at their toughest moments. I don't think that's when you shrink. I think that's when you rise and, and, and show our, our community what we're about and show the rest of the world what we're about. And I think we send a message uh, by doing that. Very well said. What makes El Paso unique, um, especially when you compare you have worked on other cities, right? What makes our city unique? Well, we're on mountain time. That's, <laughs> a, that's one thing that makes us right. unique. We're next to Juarez. Yeah. That's another. Yeah. And uh, yes, we're next to Juarez. And yes, we, um, you know, we have three states, two countries, and one, we're one region. We have an incredible um, young, talented workforce. Uh, that makes us unique. We have, um, I think we have incredible sight lines, you know, in terms of sunrises and, and, and just how beautiful the clouds are with the mountains and the backdrop, the trail systems that we have. Um, that you don't have just in any city. And so we have a lot to offer that, um, we're, and we're still in Texas. I mean, we're the only city that has mountains in Texas. So, um, yeah, I think those are just some of the qualities that make us extremely unique. Uh, but, but I think at the very end of the day, our people are what sets us apart. You know, I talked about we have a very young workforce uh, but we have a very can-do attitude. And I know you talked about there's a lot of people that have complaints, but there's a lot of people, just like there are in a lot of cities throughout throughout America, throughout the, throughout the world, how they don't say a whole lot, but they put their nose to the grindstone and they're working, and they're working, just like my dad, my mom did. We have people like that here, and they're very positive, and they're getting a lot done. Um, yeah, you're always going to have negativity. But those people need to be reminded, look, man, we're not going to be here on this earth that long. Don't be negative your whole life. Now work on something that's positive. Make yourself better. Make others around you better. And what can you leave behind as a positive for others? I mean, that's what we should be thinking about as a community. Thank you, Senor. Do you think um, sometimes, again, at least all my conversations, we get criticized on maybe El Paso has a small town mentality, meaning like we don't see the, the, the big picture, the progress, like the things that are the, the hard work that it's going to take. Do you share that? Do you not? I think, you know, I've heard in other cities, not just El Paso, that they're fighting the brain drain. You know, I've heard that here. You know, I've, I've heard that small town mentality in other cities. And, and, yeah, some people have said that here. But I think, you know, we're a big city. We have uh, big city problems. Uh, in some parts of the city, we operate like a small city. 
in a good way. So I think we're a little bit of everything. I mean, we, we are a big city, and I think th- sometimes we forget that we're as big as Denver. People don't realize that. Uh, or Detroit. You know, people don't realize that. And that we, we rival a lot of other cities that people scratch their head. I didn't know you were that big. Because, you know, we, we have a lot of we have we have a lot of square you know, we have a lot of um, I guess geography in El Paso because it's a big city in terms of the geography that that we command here. Uh, so it's a it's a large geographical area, and I think we have a lot more people here than than people know that we have here. Um, so maybe that's why they say those kinds of things. But no, I I think that the city's operating not only uh, in the community but as an organization. Um, like a big city, uh, and we we've we've got a lot to show for that 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 we are a big city. Gracias, señor. Closing out our conversation, which I uh, have enjoyed a lot. What's in the future for El Paso? Where do you see El Paso going in five years, in ten years? Talk to us about that. Well, I know that right now our council has been identifying a lot of of needs that we have in the community, as has the community, in doing more streets. So I know that's a very basic item, but I see more streets in the future. I know that that we are also uh, growing with the types of ways we're changing how we do uh, policing in terms of introducing new ordinances. We're working on that to introduce new ordinances in order to make it safer for our community. But in terms of the, the big things that people want to see, what's the next big thing, what's coming to El Paso that, that we don't have? You know, I think we would, we would like to still get a resort hotel here in El Paso, something that's going to bring people here. Um, I think that higher-paying jobs is a very high priority. I see that in our future. We've already increased wages by 17%. That is a huge priority. We're working on a couple of, uh, of, of job relocations here from other cities that – would be a big shot in our arm. So that's that's a, a big, big priority for us. Um, I see the development of Uptown, which is across the interstate on the other side of downtown that's across the street from UTEP. That's developing more and more. That's been a priority for us for several years. I see a build-out at the airport and making that more of a advanced manufacturing industrial park. I see that as something that we're looking at doing in the future. I see more development on the east side relative to making improvements to the uh, traffic patterns and street improvements in order to reduce congestion because I know that's that's a big issue on the east side. So those are just some of the things that we see in the future of, um, of El Paso, but we're going to also continue doing more surveys and getting more input from, from the citizens and see what other kinds of things that they put in front of us that are important and priorities for them. Nice. How about your uh, personal future? Well, I love El Paso, and I know that um, you know my contract goes through 2024. You know, I I'm focused on on completing that contract if at all possible, and so that's what the, my future holds so far. And so I, I do this on contract basis. So when we talked about my salary, um, uh, you know, this is on a contract basis. So it's not like I have a permanent job, and so I have to negotiate what I can negotiate because it, it might not be something that I'm here. You know, forever, and so that th- those are those are some considerations I need to make and have as it as it uh, relates to my family and my livelihood as well. Okay, talk to us a little bit more at a personal level. Like, do you see yourself retiring in Costa Rica? Like, is there any yeah. goals that you have? <laughs> um, talk to us about that. What 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 do you see? Again, forget about work yeah. now. 
Tommy, in 20 years, I see myself drinking margaritas all day long. What, what, no, I don't okay. see that. <laughs> I don't see myself retiring. Okay. I don't. I, I see myself uh, working and, and attempting to make uh, you know this city better and other cities better if, if, if I end up in another city. Uh, but I'm committed to El Paso, and I, I just don't think that, I mean, I think if I st- if I retire, that's when you start dying. I think, and, I, and even people that I know that are retired, some of them are active doing part time stuff. And so, I think I'm always going to do something. I always got to keep my mind active, in order to um, you know you need to do mental gymnastics so that you don't have your brain deteriorate either. So I'm always going to be challenged my challenging myself, and I want to get my kids through the MBA law school at uh, at Tech. They have an MBA law law degree program, and so that's what I want them to do. And so I. I see at least another five to six years that I need to work uh, to get them through school. Then after that, I'm sure they'll get married, they'll have kids. I want to be one of those grandpas that's jingling money in their pocket, so I need to work to have money to jingle in my pocket to uh, to be around for, for my grandkids. Thank you for sharing that. I hate to prolong this, but I know that at least I'm going to have regret if I don't ask. It's for tips on becoming more accountable, more disciplined like yourself. And I'm sure other people will also benefit from your knowledge. What are some advice that you have for people wanting to become better leaders, better people at whatever they do? And again, I personally struggle with holding myself accountable, mm-hmm. uh, having that discipline, right? Um, for the most part, uh, I mean, I, I have been okay but i want to get that much better right and i know it requires that much more of effort right what are some recommendations some advice anything that um that you can share well i would recommend that you put a strategic plan together for yourself i think people should have a personal strategic plan what do they want to accomplish in the next five years we did that for our 500 in our organization and also for the people on the organizational chart we said look you need to map out a course for your next five years what do you want to do in the next five years so when you sit and think about that and then you tell them and then after that what do the next 10 years look like when you really sit down and think about that that's the best thing you can do for someone else and and that will hold yourself accountable because then you start thinking about what can i do in the next five years so I'm in this next position that I want to be in, or that I'm in this house that I want to be in, or I'm in this kind of shape that I want to be in. So you can have a personal strategic plan that you want to do, not only from a mental standpoint, but a spiritual standpoint and a, and a, and a physical standpoint. So I always tell my sons those three things. You need to be good at, 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 at mentally developing yourself, spiritually developing yourself, and physically developing yourself. So I would say those two things that I would tell people uh, that would be good tips to have a personal strategic plan like I've described and then remember those three things develop yourself mentally physically and spiritually nice. do you then break them down into specific tasks that you have to complete within a month or uh, do you give yourself also timelines deadlines I find that if it's it's almost like eating uh-huh. if you're forced to be on a diet you're not going to stay on the diet and you know, as a dad to my kids, as an example, if I tell them to do something, they're not going to do it. I think oftentimes you have to motivate people and inspire them to do something. So you need to, whether it's physically or whether it's mentally or spiritually, they got to want to do it. And I think the first step is to have a, a, a personal strategic plan because then they put things in front of them that they can accomplish. And you need to be able to accomplish the goals you put in front of you. You might say, well, maybe the goals are too easy. Okay, well, then redo it. After you meet those goals, do another one. So that's a very good tool 
for people to be able to utilize something like a personal strategic plan so that they then put goals in front of themselves that they can accomplish and if they accomplish them faster, they can redo it. And then the, and then the, the, uh, the three-prong kind of guidance about the spiritual and mental and physical part, they can go at their own pace. Some people have issues spiritually developing themselves. Some people have issues mentally developing themselves or, or physically developing themselves. You know, my my sons, you know, one of them's really good at physically and spiritual, but not so good at the mental. The other one's very good at mental, you know, not so good at the physical, and somewhat good on the spiritual. See what I mean? You got to get good at all three. And I tell them, when you do that, you're a balanced individual, and then you can be the best person you can be, the best version of yourself, and then you can lead others. So that's what I tell my kids. Um, I tell my organization that as well in terms of, those are the three things that are important as far as, far as guiding guiding uh, points for them. But the personal strategic plan is what we're working on now for the 500. It's been very rewarding for them. I've gotten a lot of good feedback uh, from, from our folks. And then I'm just constantly sending them messages. Um, and I did a lot more when COVID was really at its height. Uh, now I'm doing one every other, every other month to the 500, sending them an email. Uh, and then, and then sometimes I don't send them something like I don't think I've sent them something in the last three months, uh, because it's got to be something that's meaningful and that's useful to them. I don't just want to send an email to them just to send them an email. If it's something that inspires or motivates me, I share it with them, and and yeah, that works the best I think for me. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, we also have to have an honest conversation with ourselves to identify what are my strengths, what are my opportunities, what is it that I need to work on, and then after that, of course, have a plan in place and, of course, execute on that. Absolutely. Uh, Senor, the last question that I asked all my guests, you have answered some of it. I'm very interested um, in your response. The question is, it's a two-part question. What is the one thing you love about El Paso? You cannot say food, by the way and one thing that you would change or improve about our city? <laughs> the, the one thing, that, there's several things, but the one thing that comes to mind immediately are the good people that I've met in certain aspects of my life. You know, you're, you're one of those people. Um, I think uh, Shane is another one of those people. I think the, the, the lady that cuts our hair, she's another person. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. Um, our neighbors, uh, they're incredible people. They take care of us and, and likewise us with them. So that's the first thing that comes to mind in terms of what do I love about El Paso? Those are the, that, that just pops up in my head. And so that's my honest response. I appreciate that. Yeah, as far as, as far as, because um, you know, there's good people and I like good people. I know that's, you're like, well, that's dumb or a very simple thing to say. Yeah, but I'm very simple. I mean, I'm very basic. And, and when you run into good people that are good-hearted and genuine people, you don't forget that. And so I really appreciate it whenever we, um, we run into good people and then we, we're friends with them because they're going to be your friends forever. And, and um, we've been very fortunate here with the good friends that we've, we've made here in El Paso. As far as what I would change about El Paso, I think that um, it's difficult to say because – I think that a lot of the things I would change about it, we're doing it at the city. And that is that we're looking more into our future, not so much just reacting. So I would say that we need to do that more and more, all of us do. Uh, and as a community, obviously anybody would want that for any community. So 
just being more proactive and looking thing looking at things out into the future making sure that people understand that there's a rhyme and reason to what we do the things that i mentioned about now having 10 million dollars aside for streets it makes a lot of sense doesn't it it's hard for people to disagree with it especially when we say we never had it before now we do it's hard to disagree with having and we're barely at the same number of officers we were 20 years ago people are like whenever i tell them that they're like look at me like what yeah that's why the response times five years ago, whenever that, that was that story, I don't know if you remember on KVIA about it took three and a half hours for a police officer to respond to a barbecue, somebody was being robbed or whatever. It's because we don't have any officers. So it was very important. So it's a lot of those kinds of things that we're now more proactive about. We do things ahead of time and we leverage, whether it's resources or dollars, to get things done. And and I think we have lots of examples now. And so I think that's a beautiful story that we, we are able to tell now in terms of we had neglect, look at what we're doing about it. Look how we're being proactive towards the future and how we are looking towards our future today and not waiting and reacting when the problem gets here. So we're more proactive. So that's a sign of a large city. That's a sign of a big thinking city. So we're, we're, we're bigger thinkers now. We, uh, we're more strategic, and uh, we're more aligned with our community's needs because we listen to them, and uh, we execute better, and therefore we get better results. I think our community can see it. I think there's a lot of things our community should be upset about, of all the things that weren't getting done over decades in, in time. They should be upset about that, and they should hold us accountable. So, so absolutely, we've gotten better in those areas, and it's because we have a plan, and it's because we listen. We execute better, therefore we have better results. Thank you, Senor. Any closing thoughts, anything that you want to um, perhaps say? Anything else that we're missing, Senor? I believe that, that we all have a responsibility while we're on this earth to make, whether it's if you have kids, you know, raise them right, I always, I used to always say in love, but grow, grow them up right, you know, raise them right, give them the tools they need to be successful, and know that um, you put them in a position to succeed. I think we then need to be able to do that when we work in our professions, and develop others, and see how rewarding that is, and how that has a ripple effect, and how when you run an organization of this size and you're able to do that then you're successful. When you're able to impact the 500 as an example and see them lead the organization and do great things, then all of a sudden you have 20 things or 50 things or 100 things that are great things that are happening all the time. Then the results, they turn out faster. People wonder how we get so much done. I tell them, I said, it used to be the city could only do one thing. And then they lost their mind just doing that one thing. Now we do 289 things, and we do them all really well. Why? Because we've developed our leaders, given them the tools that they need. And now you got examples like we used to have 12,000 pothole repa- repairs every year. Now we have 76,000. Um, that's a good and bad thing. It shows that we need more money for streets if you have that many potholes that you're repairing. But it also shows we got more efficient, more effective of doing that. So. We have multiple examples like that, and I think that that's probably the, the, the best um, uh, advice that I would give anyone is work to develop others in order to have these great successes because when you develop others, all you got to do is sit back and see all 
of the success happen and all the results take place. And that's a very, very rewarding feeling. Very well said, sir. Senor, once again, I just want to thank you not only for your time, but the, the things that you have shared. I have enjoyed this conversation a lot. I have learned a lot. It has opened my eyes to different uh, different perspective on a lot of things. And I just want to thank you again for, for everything you do, for your time, and again, everything that you have shared. Well, thank you uh, for doing this, Ellie, because I don't know, uh, you know who does this for the sake of making yourself better, learning, and sharing knowledge and information with others um, just because you're being good for no reason at all. I used to tell people all the time that my dad was good for nothing. And they were like, what? I said, yeah, he's good for no reason at all. <laughs> he's, right. just, he's just good. He has no reason for being good. He's just, he's just a good man. And he, he doesn't need a reason to, to, to be good. He's just good for no reason. I said that in a speech one time um, to honor my father. He's good for nothing, for no reason at all. He's just, he's just good. He was just a good man, and he had a tremendous impact on my life. And you know, I miss him very much. And uh, he was a great, great person. Well, thank you again. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop now because yes. All right, guys. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Adios. <laughs>